All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 97. I apologize to everyone that this episode is coming out late. Um, I guess I can say mea culpa. Fool me twice. Shame on me. This is the second time I was knocked down hard in the same winter. Clearly, I need to amend a few of my ways. Um, Having said that, this is a heck of an interesting episode. We're going to delve into the natural sciences that kind of drive the laws and rules that are employed behind the sky clock that we've been showing, you know, showing everyone all these major concerns in this world have been tracking and encoding in one way, shape or form. Um, In the first hour, Jason's having a bit of an attack from uh, allergies, but by the second, we really pick up steam. But nonetheless, the, the, the information about color, while it could be argued finitely, you know, in one direction or the other, the absolute meaning of anything, it doesn't matter. The underlying colors that we're going to talk about here in the older sciences can be corresponded out into so many things. But before we get in, there is one heck of an interesting conversation going on in the forum for members at Crow777Radio.com, and it has to do with the equinox. And I will say this. Um, for the oldest text that we have ever read for the entire time I have ever been in the public eye on YouTube or anywhere else, I have been harping on the importance of equinoxes, even having filmed the first lunar wave at the fall equinox on the highest Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. These are critical, critical times. But there are three things that have always held in ancient and encoded texts that are true about the equinoxes. The first is that the day and night will be equal. The second is is that the moon, the sun will pass zero degrees of declination, and the third, <clears throat> excuse me, and the third is that the sun will rise due east. Well, guess what? In the forum, we began to break this down. It was a problem that I had been working on as much as I've had time for, and we found out that in fact, equal day or night precedes when the sun actually does the zero declination passage and rises due east, which are the concrete reasons we should call an equinox an equinox. But nonetheless, where is the equal day and night? As a matter of fact, what we have begun to find is the further south you move away from, say, Canada, the United States, or the lower part of the United States, the earlier equal day and night happens. Now, this rings serious bells for the models we've been handed, but it opens up any number of questions. We will be delving into this more, and I want to give a special thanks to the membership over at the forum who participated, Blue Lights, Budsy. Mr. Smith, thank you. Denny R214, the Japanese character guy. And <laughs> that's the best I can do. I'm sorry. S Frog, again, S Frog, the work you did. Thank you so much. People will be using that work to move forward. Don Julio, 303G, Clove, Scary Gary777, Existential Crisis, and Rob Bob. I hope I didn't miss anyone, but I was down hard last time I collected these names. That conversation is still going on, and we'll probably be presenting more with this later. There is a certain set of numbers we can see encoded over and over and over that seem to be paralleling, excuse me, paralleling an actual real-world existent relationship to the equinoctal points. We'll get into that more later. Anyhow, what, let's jump in with Jason and look at some of the rules of very old natural sciences and the idea of color so that people can begin to understand that color has an effect. It is a cause. It has a meaning. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. I've been down a little bit with the flu. I'm back. Sorry for the delay to everybody. Uh, welcome, Jason. Hello. Let's do this. Yeah, did I say this is episode 97? It's still episode bit, 97. Yeah, I'm a bit spaced out. Uh, we had a hell of a nor'easter come through while I was sick. Um, how are things going down there? It's a beautiful day. All right, what do we got to cover here? I guess the first thing we should talk about is it seems like YouTube channels have been dropping like flies. Um, we're actually seeing... Hints don't know how accurate they are that people are getting lawyers and starting to face down the censorship. Don't know where that's going to go. What have you heard, Jason? I've heard just that. A friend of mine messaged me the night it was happening a few nights ago. Seems like it's going on. And then some people got their channels back. Don't know really what to think about all this because I don't have any direct evidence, just what other folks are saying. But yeah, definitely some channels got hacked. 
Right. The modern day book burning is ramping up. And if I had to guess, we're going to see it come lock, stock and bat barrel hard um, into the new solar year here as we get into March. Uh, I While I was sick, I dragged my butt up once to check emails and people said, where's your YouTube channel? You've got 18 subs or something like this and no videos posted. So apparently my channel blinked out for a while. I am still carrying one strike, um, but uh, anything else for the intro here? Yes. Let's discuss that I'm going to be on the Fringe FM tonight, which is Saturday, because that's when we're recording at 11 p.m. Central, for at least an hour, and then we're going to see how it goes. I'm not sure exactly how long his program goes. Okay, just so people understand, the Fringe FM is now running the first hour of some of our shows, and I believe he typically does that uh, Saturday at 8 p.m. EST. Uh, Jason will be on that program tonight, and we're trying to kick this out. Uh, it's actually Saturday today, um, so we're try- it's Saturday the third. So we're trying to do the show and edit it and kick it out all on the same day because I got backed up uh, from the flu. But anyhow. Um, We've done a lot of shows now to show people that every dang place that ever mattered in this world has been tracking the sky, that every kind of secret society or any other place that matters in this existence of ours is encoding the sky. Um, So now that we've taken so much time to go through that, to show people, it's not hokum. Uh, People do not track these things for no reason at all. Uh, We're going to start to get into the older ideas and the older sciences that very likely, almost certainly predate what we call modern science. Anyhow, Jason, you want to just jump in, or is there anything else to add here? Well, perhaps we should mention the relevance of the equinox. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, you know what? Um, The whole intro, I'm going to tack on what's been going on at the forum for members over at Crow 777 Radio, but I will briefly mention it. The equinox is a key, key date. It is encoded everywhere. Whenever you see the pillars, the two pillars encoded in like Masonic stuff, one of the encodings of what you're looking at is the equinoctal points. Um, It is always associated with equality. Um, And to put a frame of mind around it for people, Um, Many of the older spiritual traditions viewed this world as hardship, Um, and you can look at a number of them. And in these older sciences, it's almost always referred to as the cycle of necessity, that we have to go through this suffering. When you think about the equinoxes, basically what it's saying is there are two days in an entire year of life here where equality happens. And on one of them, you're in the fall equinox, so you're getting ready to fall into hell, um, or the winter months where hardship and the decline of spiritual concerns is said to happen. So there's all that, Jason. And I will cover, um, we have discovered some astounding things about the equinox. Uh, I'm going to cover that in the intro that I tack on to this. All right. So what we're going to talk about on this episode is more to do with alchemy and how it relates with natural law, natural principles, especially against the modern idea of uh, scientific research, right? Maybe you can explain that a little better than I can. Right. So basically what it comes down to is in the same way alchemy was the predecessor to chemistry, um, There, that science goes further and out into all branches where there is an older version of science that basically uses nature or ideas of nature to schematize a way to think about how things work here. When science came along, it kind of wholesale at some point, Lord knows when, separated from any natural idea where it's almost like science these days and scientism will come up with anything they can think of and they will connive and do anything they can to get their way. And quite often, even these made up out of whole cloth things we see in science become usable in some way, shape or form. So what we're going to do is go back to the predecessor of this when things were explained as aspects of nature. That's the best I can put it. And I'll try to point out, you know, so many people think when you say words like Jupiter or Hermes, you're talking about gods. That's not the case here. And I'll try to address these things as we get to them. All right. So we're going to do a little bit of review here. And let's start with Hermes Trismegistus. This name means thrice greatest. This is referring to his mastery over the three planes of existence, as is explained in Hermetic philosophy. The three planes are the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. In Egypt, he was known as Thoth, and in Greece, as Hermes. To quote, The vice of the soul is ignorance. The virtue of soul is knowledge. For one who knows is good, and reverent, and already divine. 
So part of the problem of what's going to happen as we get into this, we're going to say words like hermetic and Hermes Trismegistus, and it's like saying the word alchemy. I hate to use these words because they're loaded words, and what happens is we say them, people hear them, they have a preconceived notion, and they quit thinking about it. They say hokum or they do whatever they do. So let's try to establish right now um, that we're going to address these things because it's the way we have to talk about them. And I'll try to unravel some of it. The idea of Hermes here goes through every myth we can ever look at. You know, if it's a myth that matters from supposed ancient times, there's going to be a version of this idea. What myths do is they encode ideas and the people who are knowledgeable or adepts or who have been trained, initiated, will understand in the same way the Bible does the exact same thing. When someone has been clued in, they can unravel the myth itself and get away from the kind of huffy, fluffy story that's being told and get back to the basis of what was encoded in these tales. In the case of Hermes Trismegistus, I have said often on the show that I'm not sure I accept there was ever an actual person named Hermes. I know a lot of people who follow Hermeticism may disagree, but that's fine. The main point here is if we look at Greece, you're looking at Hermes. This gets put into the word hermetic. Um, this gets totally associated with the idea of Mercury, the planet Mercury, and all that it encodes. And finally, if we go back to an older version of the name Thoth, it almost is certainly the root for the word thought. So you can see what we're talking about here is aspects of nature, in my view. Anyhow, Jason. Hermetic, in the usage we were referring to, means secret or esoteric or occult. And of course, occult in Latin means hidden. Not evil or witchcraft or any of that other nonsense a lot of people like to toss around. It is referring to knowledge that is in correspondence with the conduct and nature of the universe. Someone who would understand the three laws would be considered quite wise and could use them to master all of the three planes of existence. In an everyday usage, these principles can help you come to terms with some of the fundamental aspects of life and how the world works. All right, so what we're going to start to get in here is the idea that back before modern science, the aspects of nature were, for lack of a better term, schematized or described in a way that it would allow people to do things with them. And truly, they did. Alchemy is proof of this. The medicine that came out of these times, which in my view is a heck of a lot closer to a true idea of medicine than we currently have. But to cut to the chase here, we're going to get through the seven basic principles that is labeled hermeticism. But here's the truth. You can logically go at almost every one of the things Jason's about to break down. You'll find that common sense exists in all of it, and you'll find that you can correspond it out in some way, shape, or form uh, to modern science even. So there it is. Let's jump in, Jason. So the seven hermetic principles, the first one of which is the principle of mentalism. And it embodies the truth that is all is mind. This can be taken to mean that everything is actually spirit and that the universe is a unified living mind of some sort. So let me break this down a little bit. We've covered this many times where I've even written blog articles that many people have written where I accept wholeheartedly at this point in my life that our minds precede all experience. Everything that we can see, smell, happen, anything in this world is preceded by our minds. This, of course, gives rise to ideas like the whole matrix thing that so many people like to go at, which for the most part, I don't accept in one way. And in another way, I think it's almost unprovable to try to go go at it to show one way or the other if it's even possible this is like a matrix existence we're in but to get back to the point here anyone can look at the the first law or the first rule here called mentalism and test it and logically work out that in fact mind does precede everything so there's that okay the second one is the principle of correspondence now this is something that we've actually spoken about quite a lot on this show because it's frequently spoken about being as above so below so of all the things that we're going to talk about, this is the one that seems to be completely vacant from modern science and scientism. The idea of correspondence gets into a whole spiritual side of things, which I think has real value. And as we get into this episode, we're going to start to talk about color and other things. Uh, it seemingly appears on the face of it, and logically, if you challenge it, that there was a time in this world when adepts could walk up, look at something like a living flower, and know a hell of a lot about it just by the color and appearance. 
Now, this is maybe the first steps of being able to bring correspondence to bear. Anyone could look up for further description of correspondence, but in my view, correspondence is one of the main things uh, that got left behind when we got into modern science. Next, we have the principle of vibration, and this is the notion that nothing ever truly rests, that everything is always in motion. Okay, this, I mean, on the face of it, everyone knows mostly that this this is accurate, no matter whether you go in modern terms at it or you, you, go, you use these older ideas uh, of the aspects of nature. This is going to play heavily into the color that we're about to get into. And in past episodes, you know, I've had people like Dave J. And when, you know, I was going to get him on for this episode, actually, but he's pretty much walked away from the mess of uh, censorship that YouTube has become. And I said, would you like to talk a little bit about a color? And his response was this. Yeah, sure. I'd like to talk about light. So even in in that idea of him talking to me, he's perfectly in sync with the way we're going to cover the ideas here from an older natural aspect. Go ahead, Jason. The next is the principle of polarity. And we see this a lot reflected in the mystery schools because this is the concept of duality. Everything has poles, a positive and a negative and opposite. Yeah, I think anyone that looks at ideas like this logically, uh, and even if they use modern science to look at them, they're going to find out that these are true things. Go ahead. The principle of rhythm. All things rise and fall. The tides of the universe, everything flows in and out. You can find exact correspondences to modern science and scientism, you know, the idea of change or cycles or whatever you would want to see in modern science that show this. But you see, looking at it in this way, the principle of rhythm is wholly a more holistic or natural way to view the place we live, in my view. Go ahead. Well, I would just say that best example would be frequency. Um yeah, in some ways, but I mean, you could almost put frequency in with vibration uh, when you begin to read both of them. But anyhow. The principle of cause and effect. There's a cause for every effect and an effect from every cause. This is practically Newtonian, isn't it? Cause Very and effect. So. The, yeah, the idea of cause and effect. I don't think it's arguable. I have said often that every cause or every effect we see in this world had a cause. There is no thing that we will ever experience that did not have a cause. And that is a critical, critical thing for the average person or the average mind to think about whenever they're experiencing things. I mean, how much time as human beings in this world have we spent? Something happens and we're saying, why did this happen? Um, at the base of it, if we boil it down to its most basic way we can think about it, cause and effect, in my view, is the most basic we can view any given event. Go ahead, Jason. The principle of gender is the last. The idea that there is gender in everything, that there are masculine and feminine ideals at work with all aspects of the universe. This principle works ever in the direction of generation, regeneration, and creation. Here's a funny thing about language. For those of us that speak English, and that's the only language we speak, the idea of gender here is probably obvious on the face of it, but less so to the older languages, the Romance languages or the Latin-based languages. And as an example, um, if you were speaking Spanish and you are going to say a noun of some kind, it's almost always preceded by la, which is the feminine, or el, the masculine, um, like la mesa. That would be a table. The table has the aspect of being thought of and talked about as feminine. Um, or you could say el toro, the bull, there's the masculine. So there is even embedded in the older languages of our world, the absolute principle of gender has been actually embedded into the language, though we've lost most of that in English. Okay, so let's move on to color. The mainstream definition of color is the quality of an object or substance with respect to light reflected by the object, usually determined visually by measurement of hue, saturation, and brightness of the reflected light. Basically, what we're going to get into here is the natural idea of color from maybe the alchemical point of view or the, the much older point of view. And when you begin to think about the things we're going to say, it shows that, in fact, if some guy wanted to make medicines out of a plant, um, he was going to correspond that plant 
Notice I used the word correspond there, correspondence, to some aspect of nature. What that was going to do was allow him to determine um, what ailments could be treated with a given plant, and color played into this heavily. And to further break that down a little bit, you've got to understand from these older points of view, um, what the prism does to sunlight is the basis for mostly what we're going to talk about. When you take a prism, it breaks sunlight down into a spectrum of seven colors, and that corresponds, once again, in correspondence to the what they called the seven visible planets, which is not gods, which is not any of the nonsense that we've been told in myth. It is literally aspects of nature and influence. So the primary colors are red, blue, and yellow. Primary colors cannot be mixed from other colors. They are what they are in nature. They are also the source of all the other colors. The secondary colors are mixed from two primary colors adjacent to each other on the color wheel. The secondary colors are orange, green, and violet. Okay, so there's some critical things being communicated here. In in alchemy, there's the idea of prima materia, in other words, the first material. In other words, there has to be a basis in, in the world for all things to start. The idea being uh, with primary colors is a similar thing. We can't make a primary color out of other things. It's like they're the, the prima color materia. But the interesting thing in the modern age, and this is part of the reason we're covering color in this way, is that we have wholly shifted away from these natural, observable truths about color. In the same way Jason just told you what the primary colors truly are, which is red, blue, and yellow, we now use RGB or red, green, blue in almost all electronic devices as an additive color. That is an artificial color system that has no basis, in my view, in reality. And when you start to understand that every color has an effect on the human eye and the human mind, you're going to begin to understand when you're watching your TV and you see these bizarre electric greens and other things, what's actually going on there? What's actually being done with these color schemes that are being put in front of you? As we get further in, we'll talk about it. But just to suffice it to say, we're talking about the true natural color palette at this point. That's right, because a computer monitor or television screen generates three colors of light, which are red, green, and blue. And the different colors we see are due to different combinations and intensities of these three primary colors, even though they're not technically the primary colors. Each pixel on a computer screen is composed of three small dots of compounds called phosphors surrounded by a black mask. So here's the other thing about computer color and the way we see it. You know, when I was early into computers in the 90s, um, almost everybody who was going to do artistic endeavors used Macintosh. Part of the reason was that the blacks were better and the color scheme was better. But you've got to realize, here's another thing. When I go out in nature and I look at all the variety of color, it's not even remotely the same as when I come in and I look at the artificial universe as a computer. Part of it is that this manufacturer may use a different phosphorus amount, or over time, an old computer, the phosphorus has lost its power to project color in the same way. So you can begin to see the non-stable artificial nature of what we've done with color um, for so many minds in this world. I mean, consider today the average teenager. Um, it would be an interesting thing to understand in a day how much natural color have they seen in the world versus the artificial color that's been brought to them on their electronic devices. I mean, give it some thought. And again, we're going to get into the effects that color have on your existence and on your mind. And it's not really arguable in my view. These things all have what will be called in this system a different vibrational rate and a different effect, literally. Now, before we get into the more hermetic aspects of color, there's an interesting person we uh, would like to tie all this into who seemed to really be dialed into the universe in a very interesting way. Alexander Scriabin, a 19th and early 20th century composer, he began an interesting artistic process of combining multiple concepts into his music. Beginning with his Prometheus composition, Scriabin enters into the concept of the total work of art. And what this means is he brings the concepts of music, colors, word elements, and philosophy all together to be in harmony within a single piece of work. The piano in Prometheus embodies the concept of the Promethean spirit, which shows defiance against the gods in bringing fire to the earth for man, for which Scriabin invented a new tonality, the so-called Promethean or mystic chord, 
a six-note synthetic chord outside of major and minor chords. Many of his subsequent works would include the use of this chord with derivations emerging from its transpositions. Inspired by his Prometheus, Scriabin continued to explore the ideas of a mystery, linking music, poetry, and dance, leading to the redemption of humanity through a symphony of sound, light, color, and scents, which would envelop the listener and bring him to a state of ecstasy. For Scriabin, colors have become the means, color as sound intoxication, and color intoxication as sound. He remained a philosopher-composer for the rest of his life. And what this really gets down to is the assignment of colors with frequencies and how that all breaks down. And this is what this gentleman was using. Right. And from the older Hermetic idea, we're basically talking about vibration, probably. But at the end of this paragraph, you say he's interested in, you know, presenting sound intoxication and color intoxication. And so what what is a better correspondence that we can make to what the television, as an example, does to people? If you go back and you look at TVs, and I've covered this before, maybe from the 60s, and look at the vibrance and the colors of the earliest color TVs, whenever that was, I've forgotten, and look what's happened each decade. They've gotten more vibrant, more vibrant. Even go back and look at the 80s, where everything was still like these kind of flaming, weird pastel colors, you know, that, that kind of weird imagery we get from the 80s where all the colors had gone haywire. Um, this is exactly what this guy's trying to do in his compositions, but he's referring to it as sound intoxication and color intoxication. But to get back to the main point here, he starts doing this in a composition he's calling Prometheus. For those who hearken back to our older episodes, they will understand Prometheus is just the Luciferian tale told maybe in an earlier way, um, certainly in a different way. Hard to know what precedes what with the history and timeline we have. But again, he's talking about defiance against the gods and bringing fire to earth for man. That's the Promethean story, but it's actually just the same story as the Luciferian story. And as we get through this bullet point, we understand that he has made a what? Synthetic chord. This seems to be so much of the kind of Luciferian mindset where they're, at the same time this guy is trying to incorporate all these ideas of nature into what he's doing, first thing he does is come up with synthetic ideas, moving away from nature. In the modern era, with Luciferianism so high, I have stated many times, it is almost like the people running this show want to replace the natural system with a synthetic system, and that would make them the gods of that synthetic system because they cannot be the gods of the natural system, if that makes any sense. All right, so we're going to get into the book Hermetic Science of Motion and Number by Dr. A.S. Raleigh, which was originally published in 1924, The Esoteric Meaning of Color. As all vibratory activity expresses itself in form, color, and sound, it would follow that the energy is always of that particular color, that shade or tint, which belongs to that particular rate of vibration. And this ties directly into the principles as we were discussing earlier, which is why we explain them ahead of time. This is true not only of those colors, shades, and tints which are perceptible to visible sight, the human eye, but also of the finer forces of nature which transcend the physical senses. So already they're talking about what's beyond the normal human experience. And correspondence. Correspondence plays directly into this because in the... In the spiritual idea of correspondence, where people took these natural sciences and then corresponded them, a lot of what they're doing is corresponding things they can't see, smell, touch, but they basically know they exist. So they're using the idea of correspondence to attract these spiritual elements into what they're doing, even though they can't prove they exist at all, other than by philosophy or theory. All energy, of whatever quality it may be, is continually vibrating at some rate, and by reason of this vibration, it will assume the color, shade, or tint belonging to that specific rate of vibration. And again, the example with the composer, he seemed to know that, didn't he? Yes. As the quality and value of all forms of energy is due to their rate of vibration, it would follow that the color, being an indication of the rate of vibration, will also indicate the quality of the vibrating energy. It therefore would follow on that we have the foundation for an exact science of chronology, even implying the psychology of color as well as the chemistry of color. 
When we see the color which the energy assumes, we can recognize its rate of vibration, and therefore we would know its quality and its value. This being true, it is possible to classify, in a manner of speaking, all matter and energy of whatever degree or state they are in, perfection or imperfection, according to the color which it would assume. It should be kept in mind that the color of a visible object is due to the rate of vibration of the molecular structure or atomic structure. Therefore, the value of this object may be distinguished from its color, the same as the value of energy in a state of diffusion. It may also occur to the student's mind that this would not necessarily be true of substances which had been dyed with any sort of. Chemical or anything really. The student may think that when a garment or a piece of cloth or anything else for that matter is dyed, it would assume the color corresponding to the dye, without actually referring to its vibratory activity. But they would be mistaken. The dye is only able to dye the fabric because of the fact that it has certain chemicals in it, which will set up a vibration of the kind belonging specifically to them, and will change the vibration of the substance which is being dyed. Dyeing, therefore, is not simply a matter of painting or anything of that sort, in the sense in that it is ordinarily understood, but it is really a question of bringing about some sort of chemical change in the constitution of the object being dyed. It must, in fact, be about a change in the rate of vibration. This is why there is very little accuracy in the art of dyeing, especially in the past. It is known to people who would frequently dye things that it has been known for a long time that it was a very questionable practice as far as its end result would be concerned. They could never be certain of what the result would be, whether the cloth will give the intended color very exactly or be a bit off. Now, the reason why this is so difficult to control is because they can't always tell just how hard it is going to be to change the rate of vibration in the fabric, so as to make it conform to the vibration of the color that is desired. It is this reason that special dyes must be made for different varieties of things, such as silk or wool. Cotton, linen, whatever you happen to be using, the same dye would not be suited for all different kinds of substances. Not only would this be true that different kinds of cloth would require special dyes, it's also true that wool will dye much more deeply than any other kind of cloth. The sole problem of dyeing becomes plain when it is realized that dyeing simply consists in changing the vibration of the substance until it would correspond to that of the desired dyed color. Then the whole problem of color is actually one of vibration, and colors divide and subdivide themselves according to what you could call their occult value. Therefore, going into color chemistry in order to understand the problem of the color is what must be done. All right. There's a ton here, Jason, and I'm just going to try to break it down briefly、um, to actually communicate out to people exactly why we're talking about color in this way. In the beginning of this long bullet point,、um, it's pointed flat out that in this older natural point of view, you see color because it's rate of vibration. Then it's further stated just by color, you can know about the purity and all these other things. In other words, this alchemist is walking out. He wants to cure somebody of something and he sees a plant with a flower. That man instantly knew all kinds of things about that plant. He could correspond it all day long, even understanding what part of the body from the ancient star system that we've talked so much about could be treated using this particular plant. This is where it began,、uh, simply by knowing the color and its vibration. But as this goes along, it starts to talk about being able to figure out chronologies and all these other things. It gets very in depth. Now, at the end of this, this is a critical thing to think about. He starts to talk about dyeing clothes. Well, what's going on? In this older view, when you dye cloth, you have literally changed its vibration and therefore the impact that the human perception will have when they're exposed to that color. And as an example, you know, someone's wearing a white shirt, they dye it a different color. The whole experience from a natural point of view has changed to put this into perspective for people. You've all heard the tale where there was like this weird Nail, forgot what it's called, where they would get this purple dye from to make the royal purple that royalty wore.、Um, now, very few people are aware that in this older tradition that we're talking about, purple is a secondary color, maybe even tertiary. I think it's secondary.、Um, it is a secondary color. But what it means in its vibrational tone is mastery. 
and it's correspondable to the planet Jupiter, Jupiter or that aspect of nature. Now, keeping all this in mind, in these times, we were told it was illegal for any commoner to wear the color purple. Well, why was that? Was it just that royal people were special? No, there's more going on here. This color purple is signifying mastery, and it's vibrating at this rate that is associated with mastery. So maybe that's the best I can, example I can give for now, Jason. Let us take the primary colors as our next point. These, of course, are red, blue, and yellow. All the other colors are combinations of these colors in varying proportions. Red is considered the physical color and the color of all physical energy. Of course, there are various shades of red which have their various significations applied to them, but generally speaking, red is considered the physical color. So we're going to break down the primary colors and what the older sciences felt they meant in real life, uh, in real experience. And I think this is critical for people to understand. When you go out in the world and you begin to see all the electronic flashing of color, advertising, news, all these things that use colors, you will see quite often commonalities like how many fast food places do you ever see that are not using red or yellow? There's a reason for these things. I guarantee you there is a reason for these things. So so getting out of the gate, just let me re-identify red for you. Red is thought of as the physical color at its base. And we're going to go through a couple shades here so you can understand what the average viewer back in the day to see a color, the correspondence they would in instantly make. So the color of ether is considered to be pink or more literally the color of a fresh blown peach blossom. But its vibration is so intense that very few people are able to actually see the vibration. But ether is always, no matter what, pink. Right. So um, ether is a spiritual idea. So what they've done here is to get pink, you add white to red, right? As we get in here, you're going to understand when secondary or tertiary, mostly secondary colors for this conversation, come in. Whenever the pure color, the primary color, is made more pale, there is a spiritual aspect, and ether is that for red, which is pink. Go ahead, Jason. Which would make sense, of course, because if red is physical and white is spiritual, you're pulling the physical to a higher vibration, right? Perfect. Well said. That's that's the whole idea here. And to correspond it back to the prism in the sun, when you look at sunlight, it's considered white. Now, that's all seven colors put together to get to that white. When you use the prism, it'll break it apart into the colors we're talking about, some of them primary, some of them secondary. But anyhow, go ahead. Keep pushing. Crimson is the color of affection or human feeling. It is the self-relative color because our human affection is given to individuals on account of their particular relation to us. Affection is purely a physical as well as an animal feeling. It is not one of the high and noble emotions that it is generally considered to be, but it is purely animal in its character pertaining solely to the physical nature of man, and the color which it produces is crimson, the color of blood, because it is through the blood, the blood relation, that we have this outgrowth of affection. So you can already see when they, they've gotten to crimson here and they're telling you what it means. It's affection and human feeling, but then they instantly correspond it over to these higher-minded ideals. They point out that it's basically a physical and animal feeling. And though in the modern sense, we all feel like affection is this high, noble emotion, truth is, is if you logically look at it, it's really not. It's an animal emotion. It can lead to bad decisions. It can lead to being manipulated. All these aspects, um, and as we get through the colors here, next one being scarlet, you'll begin to understand the correspondence from the natural point of view or the older science that, that looked at these things. Right, so scarlet is the color of anger, the color in which the astral body of man would assume when he is in an intensely angry condition or state of mind. Now, anger is the forcible action of the will in a very positive manner moving outward, acting from the center of the individual outward. This is what produces the emotional state of anger. It is also related to the physical properties. In a state of anger, we feel our whole repulsion rising against the physical body of the object of our anger, just as in affection would be the drawing of the physical to you. We cannot have affection for an individual's soul, neither can we have anger at the soul. Both of these emotional states are related to the physical nature only, therefore it is always red. 
So you can start to correspond this back to things like television. You've been told that red is the physical. We've gone through a more spiritual iteration of red, which was pink, human affection, which was crimson. Now we've gotten to scarlet, which is anger. Um, so if there is any truth to these older ideas, whenever you see these colors blared at you through a television and then coupled with sound, which has every bit as much an effect on the human body as any vibrational tone coming from any color, you can begin to see how many manipulation creeps into thing. And this gets back to the idea of crimson and human emotion. You see, when you heighten an emotional state of a human being, they are then easily manipulated. That's why the idea of affection and emotion in the human being is considered to be animal. It's used against us all the time. How many times have you turned on the TV to see a 15-minute commercial of all these suffering animals, and then you're asked to give money um, to, to help these animals? That's what's being played on, your human emotion. When we see all these nonsensical violent events blared at us in the news, they're using the crimson idea here. Whether or not it truly corresponds to this color, which in some cases I think most of these are spot on, my point being they are heightening the idea of affection or emotion, and then they are bringing to bear the color schema that they already understand has an effect on you in a certain way. So anyhow, Jason. Not only is red the color of the physical, it is also the color of the will. And wherever the will is expressed, it assumes the red color because will is the outflowing or the manifesting principle, the extension or presentation of the self into manifestation. So it is the same truth expressing itself in and through to the physical. It must, therefore, bring about a vibratory tendency toward physical expression. So, consequently, it becomes the color of red. So we're going to hit one more aspect of red before we move on to other primary colors. But knowing everything you know about the older natural points of view of what color means, now go back and think about what I said, how almost all fast food places have red and yellow or at least red in their signs and begin to correspond why that is. Um, anyhow, go ahead, man. You know, you just made up a very interesting point there. As we're going through these, think about the things that you see in everyday life that how this would correspond. It's very interesting because you can see it being used. Endlessly, if you look at these major corporation logos and advertising and big, huge corporate news concerns, you've got to understand that these colors that they're blowing into your face, into your existence, they're chosen. And they're chosen for a reason nearly all the time. There's probably very few cases where a color that's ever projected at you in this way, meant to be seen by hundreds of thousands or millions of minds, was just randomly grabbed. It's not the way it works. And you've got to understand that all these big places, these places that matter, have been tracking the sky. Jason and I have proved it. Anyone who wants to argue the other way at this point, that's fine. It's your prerogative to do that. But you're just not correct. We have demonstrated that as far back as we can see, people have been tracking the sky. This is like the, the natural idea of an older science that corresponds to what they're doing here. Hint, hint, hint. Anyhow, let's go ahead and cover the last aspect of red here, jumping into the rose color. Absolutely, because rose is considered the color of life, the color of prana. And as we approach towards the physical, it would become more red. That is, the highest degree of physical life is red. As the life is brought under the influence of emotion, it would, of course, take on the blue color, and whatever color is found to be blended with this red or this rose color, it will indicate the presence in that degree of that particular color. Also, it should be kept in mind that the paler shades indicate a corresponding weakness of that particular principle, accompanied by a corresponding preponderance of the spiritual principle, which again is white, while the darker shades indicate a presence of the black element, which is the element of destruction or disintegration, the material, the evil. So let's put that into perspective before we jump into blue here. So you've got red, which is basically physical. We've broken down different versions of things based on red. What you've just been told here is that if you take red and you start adding white, at some point you're going to get to pink. Now you've become much more spiritual, the idea of the ether. If you continued to add white and white and white and white to that red, you would be moving further from the physical red to the spiritual white. You understand the correspondence being made here. And at the end of this, he just basically told you that black is going to be the absence of all of it. It's an element of destruction, disintegration, the end of material as you know it, or basically evil. That's the idea here. These ideas are not lost on the places that put color digitally or 
broadcastily, if that was a word, which it's not, into our face every single day. And these are critical things for people to understand. Anyhow, Jason, let's do blue. My favorite color, for whatever reason, the second primary color is blue. And this is the color of emotion, the astral body, and of the astral plane. All astral matter, that is to say all energy vibrating on the astral octave, is blue or red as it is the positive or negative aspect, blue being the negative, the feminine or magnetic side of astral matter, while red is the positive or the masculine side, the will in a word. The bluer the matter might be, therefore, indicating the absence of red, the more magnetic it is, while the redder it is, the more electrical it may be. Will and desire are thus the two poles of astral matter, will being the red and desire the blue. The dark blue indicates the more material desires, while the paler blue the more spiritual. So this is critical, man. We just crossed over the threshold where people should start to be able to understand. At the end of this, again, we've taken blue, we start adding white. It gets further and further away from the idea of desire or emotional blue until there's so much white, there's no blue left, and now you're wholly spiritual, or that could be correspondable to the perfected being. But you see, in this assessment of what blue means, what its vibrational rate means, it is the second primary color. It is the color of emotional uh, emotion. In my view, it's kind of unfortunate that we have to cover the astral body and these ideas because for the average person, they're just going to think it's hokum. But I will tell you, you probably don't understand what's being communicated here. And it's unfortunate that these words are so loaded and they seem so new agey. But blue is negative where red was the positive. Red is electrical while blue is magnetic now think about what this means to the old medicine man or the old alchemist going out into his herb garden to try to make some kind of a tincture or elixir or other things out of plants plants still being the basis for almost all medicine um, think about what he knows just from going out to look at these plants oh there's a blue plant well it's feminine its correspondence on the polar is negative and it's magnetic so look at what just a simple glance using this kind of an idea of thinking about nature. These older sciences, just from a glance, think of all the things that have already been classified. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. It should be kept in mind that these colors are not simply a sign as a form of symbolism to represent these emotions. But, on the contrary, it is by their very nature those emotions, when active, will actually vibrate at such a rate as to naturally take the color corresponding to it. So here's where you get into it. You know, if you're looking at a television program and they've got that kind of ugly electric green that's blared at us so often, and all the old Ebola images, there was always that electric green. You can see what's being done. Um, they're corresponding the effect of that color to you. Um, it's what's being done. And as a Side note, anyone who takes an interest in the color that we're breaking down should understand, back in the royal courts, it is said that whenever flowers were given, not only did that flower have an esoteric meaning, but the color of the flower had meaning. Go back and look at these ideas. It's stated outright that never in any of these high-power organizations were flowers just handed at random because irises were in bloom today. That's not what was going on. There was communication being given through that gift of flowers. There were statements, comments, ideas, and concepts being communicated. Go back and look at it because it's all based on what we're talking about here. Next, we have indigo blue, and it is the color of occultism, and the dark indigo partakes of evil, the element of sorcery to a certain extent, the left-hand power, while the pure indigo is emblematic of pure occultism. When I read these old accounts, it's, you know, like when, when we think about color today, I thought about this. So if I want to know what real crimson is, I can't really go to my computer and make real crimson, can I? Because I'm using an additive color system, so it's not going to be the same. So there must have been a basis in nature that kind of set what pure indigo is. And if I had to guess, it would probably be the source of things they made indigo from, knowing the exact balance if it was a secondary or the, the, the most common form if it was a primary color. But here we are. We're starting to get into the occulted ideas of colors like indigo. And I assure you, when you see these colors used in a lot of the things that people are examining today, it will give you new insight. But anyhow, let's jump into violet. 
Violet, being a very high rate of vibration, is the color of magic because it is so far above the ordinary rate of vibration that it has the power of neutralizing and transforming those rates into its own, which would give it the power of alchemy and other magical activities. So that's quite a statement to be made about a color, isn't it? You know, they're saying, hey, man, check this out. This is violet. It's got a super high rate of vibration, and it has the power to assimilate vibration of these or other ordinary things. Part of the challenge for the average listener is what is violet? Like if I ask you right now, what does violet look, look like? Um, the average person, I would guess, would have to go do some research because we just don't think about color in the same way we did. Even like when I was young and there was the Crayola crayons, you know, there was the one labeled violet violet. So at least I had some idea of probably something close to violet. Uh, in the digital age here, we're also used to additive color or projected color, as I like to call it, um, that we really have lost track of these colors. So, you know, maybe people go out and check out what does pure indigo look like? What does violet look like? These are good things to know as a basis for what's projected at you every day through televisions, through websites, through any number of things. But the next one is a big one. And I used it as an example earlier. We're going to get into purple, and it is flat out provable that this color was policed where you could be put to death if you wore this color. Only the best of the best, the masters of the universe could wear this color, and there is a reason for that season. Go ahead, Jason. That's right. Purple, it's mixed blue and red together, and therefore has the positive aspect of emotion, astral matter positively being expressed, and it is the color of mastership, and when seen in the aura of a person or being used on a person, it always indicates the master. So what are examples? I mean, I've already used examples of dyeing clothes and how only the masters of the universe could wear this color, but let's look at a modern example. How about Prince? There's a guy who wore purple. That was his whole brand, wasn't it? Um, so they're telling us here that it's a mix of red and blue. So it's almost like saying we've taken a little masculine, a little feminine, a little electric, a little magnetic, and a little positive and a little negative, and we've mixed them together. That's the androgynous prince, wasn't it? And when he picked up that guitar, is there anyone listening who would argue that he was not a master? I mean, he could have been probably one of the great guitarists of all time if that had been his main focus. And so you can see, even in the modern age, the bringing to bear of these older, naturally-based science ideas of color being applied to the modern-day prince. So there's all that. Next, we have lavender, a pale purple, which is a great deal of white mixed with purple, and it indicates the master on the astral plane. And again, let's just say, why? Because we're mixing white, white being the pure spiritual, right? Yep. But it's merging toward the spiritual, a highly spiritualized aspect of purple. All right, so let's push this lavender idea into one of the other senses and how it affects the body. So many people are aware of aromatherapy, lavender often being one of those aromas. It's the same idea here being pushed over. And in this case, we have the mastership of purple being diluted down with the pure spirituality of white. And so go out and look at lavender and how often just the aroma of lavender is used. It's put into soaps and all these other things. So I'm going to ask, is this just hoodoo? Is this just hokum? I would suggest it's not. I would suggest there is a there there. The problem is, is how do we have this conversation separating all these kind of ridiculous Tavistockian new agey ufo -y ideas that were made up out of whole cloth and try to point people to show this is the old natural science that is backing the ideas of the sky tracking and the sun tracking we have shown. So there's all that, Jason. And as we get towards the end of hour one here, we have one more aspect of blue, and that is the pale azure blue that is the mystic blue, indicating the union between the astral body and the astral world. And also as it becomes paler, it indicates a union between the astral and the spiritual. The paler the blue becomes, no matter what shade it might be, lavender or any of the other shades. In fact, the more of the spirit it indicates, while the darker it becomes, the more evil would be present. So, I mean, if, if you were to go look out at any average media and apply just simply the idea of having a pure primary color that is washed out with white or black added to make it darker or lighter, and then look at the content that you're being presented with, I, I think a good example would be green, but that's going to be in the second hour, so we'll wait on that one. But the idea of green is so critical in modern advertising. I mean, how often are you just bombarded with that unnatural electric? 
Electric Green. One of the first times I remember seeing it, as I have said so many times, was in that 80s hair band Poison. It was their whole brand, and it's like a version of this. And then as we went through the whole Ebola nonsense, we showed that all the, the press images were incorporating this green into them. Clearly, people understand these correspondences. Clearly, people are bringing these things to bear. But anyhow, Jason, I am going to tack an intro on it. Do you want to bring this hour to a close? Do you want to cover what's going to come up in the second hour? Well, of course, we're going to break down the third primary color, which is yellow. But I'd like to say in hour one that it's interesting, the last time I was in a hospital, the usage of green in certain implements. I was already kind of aware of these concepts. And note your environments that you're in and how colors are used by the establishment. It's interesting, and and you know that somewhere higher up in the societal food chain, they know what's what. Absolutely. Not only do they know what's what, they've tested it, and they've tested it under modern scientific ideas. Not only have they tested it, they've converted it over into the more modern idea of RGB being the primary colors um, or additive ideas. And people can look up the idea of additive color color palettes. Um, It's surprising. I looked up that some of the first uses were back in the late 1800s, I think, um, to make actually color images. And there's example online. Hard to know how true these things are, but you can see how far back this goes. In my my kind of evaluation of what we're shown here, when we look at the old true primary colors, which are red, blue, and yellow, we are looking at the natural system of nature. There is no lie in it. But when we come to the modern age, most for most of us each day now in the civilized world, the new color palette is RGB, red, green, blue. That's the color palette that is trying to replace the natural system. But anyhow, we cover a ton of stuff about color and other things in the second hour. Anything you want to add before I wrap it up, Jason? I just want to get everyone to bear in mind just how significant this is. This We talk a lot about symbolism and the way different things are represented. This is an, another key aspect of it. It's not just the symbol itself, but a lot of times the color associated with it. The easiest one to think about is Saturn and the color black and the black robes and all that. These things have significance. There is no doubt, there is no argument for anyone who goes through the information that we're laying down in this and the second hour and then corresponds it using correspondence out into the world that they see around them. They're going to have a new window of insight into what goes on in a day when you walk through you know, your city and you're bombarded with all this color and sound and light and all these things. Every single thing we have said about color can be corresponded to sound. After all, haven't you heard people say um, the quality of that note is green? There is a reason. There is an absolute reason. Why do you think they call that music that supposedly came out of the Delta Blues by an imaginary man named Robert Johnson is called the blues? Because it is about emotion. And we just sat here and defined a much older natural science that shows you blue, in fact, represents emotion. There has never been a time when these principles have not been used and brought to bear. Anyhow, that brings the first hour of episode 97 to a close. At the posting of this episode, there will be 97 free hours of content at crow777radio.com. You can go over there and listen to it without a login. If you'd like to become a member and support our free speech over there, that is fantastic too. And I will tell you, with the censorship at the fever pitch levels we are seeing, all of the touchy subjects are going to be addressed in hour two, and there's nothing we can do about it. Anyhow, there it is. Hope to see you over at crow777radio.com. Cheers. Cheers.